2: W-A-B-E in Atlanta. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. At the 1995 Source Awards, the Atlanta based rapper Andre 3000 declared, the South got something to say. That proclaimed the rising impact of Atlanta as an influential force in music, film, and politics. Karen Comer Lowe has curated an innovative art exhibit titled The South Got Something to Say. The artworks appear on various digital signs around downtown Atlanta. Later this hour, we'll hear from the curator and Sheila Pre Bright, one of the artists whose works are featured in the show, first in 1947, as the British were ending their 300-year occupation of India, they divided the subcontinent into two nations: the Muslim majority Pakistan and the Hindu majority India. Anjali and Jetty pays tribute. To the more than a million people who died, those who survived, and descendants of the partition in her novel The Parted Earth. The author joins us now via Zoom. Anjali and welcome to City Lights.
1: Thank you so much, Lois. It's such an honor for me to be here with you.
2: The book opens in New Delhi in June 1947 please introduce us to your characters.
1: Absolutely. Deepa is a 16-year-old Hindu girl who lives with her parents who are both in medicine. Uh, Her father is a physician. Her mother is a nurse. And Deepa is beginning a relationship with a 16-year-old boy whose name is Amir. And she is starting to feel the effects of the partition of her homeland. Many of her friends are Muslim, uh, Amir is Muslim, and she's coming to understand the fact that everyone she knows and loves uh, who is Muslim is going to have to to move. They're going to have to abandon everything they've ever known, their homes, their communities, and move to what will be the new nation, the new majority Muslim nation of Pakistan. So Deepa is trying to sort of wrestle with the politics that are happening outside of her home, the disruption of her homeland, of her dear friends, and also uh, she's falling in love with Amir.
2: Hmm. Deepa's father asks, how can we march together with Gandhi during the day and destroy one another at night? For thousands of years, Indian identity was never so inextricably tied to religion. The blood of partition is on British, not Indian hands. How do these characters put a face to the situation and struggles of Indian life in 1947?
1: You know, it is is such a tumultuous and disruptive time for all of these characters. And of course, many of them have been living in harmony for many years. Of course, there have always been tensions and strife and wars between the various religions that inhabited the subcontinent. But this accelerated, this was heightened due to British colonization of of India. It is the colonization that made these differences so apparent. And it is British colonization that capitalized on the differences in culture and community and faith. And so what is happening is, now that the British are leaving, they are literally drawing a line in the sand and directing Hindus and Sikhs to what will be the new nation of India, which will be Hindu majority, and directing the Muslims to go to the new Pakistan. And it really was a severance of what was then known as Indian identity. And so what is happening at this time is is grief. Many people who survived partition, and certainly the characters in this book, are dealing with Not only the fact that they are being separated from people that they care about, but this severance of a land that they've lived on for generations, for thousands of years, which is being sliced up by their colonizer.
2: Literature is Deepa's love and salvation. She views literature, the power of words and ancient stories as her anchor in life. In fact, the very first page of chapter one contains a poem by Tagore, the first non-European Nobel laureate in literature. He received that in 1913. Would you please read those five lines of poetry?
1: Happily. It's one of my favorite first verses in the book. But I find that thy will knows no end in me. And when old words die out on the tongue, new melodies break forth from the heart. And where the old tracks are lost, new country is revealed with its wonders.
2: What is the role of poetry within the context of this novel?
1: Personally, I find poetry, generally speaking, to be a great healer of traumas. And what is happening around Deepa, what is happening around her parents and certainly Amir and his family is that there is is no adequate language to describe what is happening to their lives. There's no language to describe the kind of violence and hostility that they're facing the sharp divisions that have been erected between communities. And it's poetry that gives these characters the space to process what they are witnessing. It is, it is really the, the only form that gives Deepa some kind of comfort and some kind of hope that when it's all said and done, things will be okay. And it is what she clings to because she's really not able to cling to much else. She endures a horrific tragedy during partition. And it's really only poetry that continues to connect her to reality and continues to let her to keep living her life.
2: Anjali, I know you were a practicing lawyer and this is your debut novel, Have you written volumes of poetry?
1: I wish, Lois. I am a major admirer of poets. You could even go far as to say that I am a wannabe poet. Um, (laughs) I I can tell you that I have volumes of bad poetry (laughs) that are filed away in deep, dark uh, corners of my cabinets. Um, But no, I, I, uh, I have so much respect for poets. I actually personally feel it's the most challenging form to write in. And I love to read poetry and I find great comfort in it. And when I was struggling with how how to figure out how a character like Deepa goes on, how she lives from day to day after what she's seen, you know, I've remembered dark times in my own life and how, how literature, including poetry, got me through it. And so this was, this was the gift that I wanted to give to Deepa as well, a love for poetry.
2: Well, I think the poems that we read of Deepa's in this book, written by you, do not indicate wannabe poet.
1: I appreciate that. Thank you.
2: As the world around them was crumbling and chaotic, Deepa and Amir fell in love crazy love. And Deepa writes a poem conveying her love. Would you read the 16-year-old's poem on page 48?
1: This is a poem Deepa writes called Night Notes. Pen to paper, paper to pen, coaxing my heart with ink the shade of midnight. Shapes shift under the moon's glow Unfolding musical lyrics, sweet sounds bringing you to me, me to you. Verdant leaves cradle dewdrops in their veins, our only witnesses.
2: Now, Amir expresses his love through origami creations with notes he includes. How is the origami? as Amir's form of communication, rich in metaphor here.
1: So, uh, as you mentioned, Lois, Amir makes origami, and he hides within the origami little love notes to Deepa and leaves them in plants on her family's porch so that she can find them, and Deepa collects them. And one of the reasons I used origami in the book, and I thought it was apt an apt way for Amir to communicate with Deepa is because origami is really about creating something new out of a blank slate. And during this time of immense strife and fear and panic in 1947 during partition, many of these characters have to leave behind everything they've ever known and begin a completely new life elsewhere, like, like refugees all over the world do. And so to me, the origami symbolizes how these characters, how people during partition had to take something out of nothing and they had to create a new life and create something beautiful out of it. And so to me, that was an important way for me to convey Amir's messages of love to Deepa.
2: You mentioned this horrific event Deep encounters her world is shattered by tragedy, and that ends part one of the book. Would you explain how part two moves to another time period, and more broadly, how you structure the novel?
1: So as you mentioned, Deepa's uh, 16-year-old life, which she lives in 1947, is in part one of the book, and the book is divided into three parts total. Part two takes us to 2016, and we encounter a character named Sean Johnson. Sean is short for Shanti, which is an Indian name. Sean is a biracial woman. She has a white mother and an Indian father. But Sean is very disconnected from her Indian heritage. Her father, Vijay, left her and her mother when Sean was only five years old, and he moved to India out of the blue. Didn't really make it clear why he was even moving to India. And when Sean is age 11, Vijay suddenly passes away. And Sean's grandmother is Deepa. And uh, she is completely estranged from her as well. So we encounter a Sean that really has no connection to India, has no idea that she has any family members who live through partition. And she's also going through a a very rough time of her own. She's recently lost a pregnancy and her marriage has ended. And it's only when these terrible things happen that Sean feels a longing to connect with the memories she has of her father and her Indian family. And part three does something a bit more unusual than parts one and two, which focus on Deepa and Sean respectively. In part three, we readers actually enter several different characters' points of view, all of whom have some connection to partition, which is not immediately obvious. It jumps in countries and it jumps in decades. So we see, for example, Lahore, which is a city in Pakistan uh, in the present day, We see Amritsar, which is a city in India in the 1980s. We see London in the 1950s. And each of these characters are going to sort of work together to figure out the central mystery in the book.
2: If you've just tuned in, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the Atlanta author Anjali Angeti. Her new novel is The Parted Earth. I'd like to go back to part two. Chapter eight is set in Atlanta, and you give a very vivid sense of place here, as well as describing a lovely friendship between Sham, whom you introduced, and Chandani. Would you talk about their relationship, how they meet and what evolves in Atlanta?
1: So chandani is Sean's neighbor in Atlanta. She lives just down the street. They've been neighbors for about 18 months, but don't know each other too well. chandani had been widowed 18 months earlier and just decided to restart her life in Atlanta where she has a niece. She can be a little bit um, abrasive, kind of harsh. She does mean well, and she's well-intentioned, and she's living alone. She's in her 60s. She has an adult son who lives elsewhere.
2: And Atlantans will appreciate the sense of place you evoke in this section. Please talk about this setting of the Atlanta Botanical Garden and comments about the cycle of life.
1: Oh, the Atlanta Botanical Gardens is... Probably one of my favorite locations in Atlanta. I usually visit a few times a year. And Chandani decides to take Sean to the gardens to talk with her and to sort of help her begin her journey of healing. Sean is now living alone. She's mourning a, a miscarriage and the breakup of her marriage. And Chandani, who has recently lost her own husband, is also in mourning. She's also grieving. And so Chandani takes her to the gardens, and she takes her to what is my favorite uh, botanical sculpture in the gardens, which is Earth Goddess. And for many people in the Atlanta area, you will know it is this beautiful sculpture with a fountain of a woman. We see her head and her shoulders coming out of the water, and for Chandani, this symbolizes a rebirth. And she takes Sean to this space. And and it is here where Chandani asks Sean in an attempt to get her to sort of take the steps necessary to heal whether she has named the baby that she lost. And it's this question that sort of begins Sean's new journey, which starts her looking forward again and seeing the generations of her family as a life cycle. And it causes her to not only name her child, but also to begin thinking more deeply about her past and her ancestry and the father and grandmother that came before her and understand that if she's going to heal at all, it is going to come from reconnecting with all of the lives that came before her and understanding the decisions and also the tragedies that her family members made.
2: Part three, opens in London in 1954. Tell us about Gertrude.
1: Gertrude is one of my favorite characters in the book, probably because she is modeled a little bit after my Austrian grandmother, Gertrude, who passed away a few years ago. Gertrude is Austrian. She finds herself in London when all of her family who lived in Linz, Austria were killed uh, during World War II and the Nazi occupation of Austria. So she, in many respects, is also a refugee and she meets Deepa at the university that they both attend in London. And they live in the same building and decides to help Deepa raise her very young son, Vijay, who is only six years old. And they form a bond. Both of them are very, you know, they live their lives alone. Neither one of them have close family members to rely on. And so they kind of form their own family together.
2: When the narrative moves to 2017, can you tell us how the characters' stories converge?
1: One of the things that struck me most about Partition, and it's something I still think about regularly, that six decades passed before there was a formal widespread effort to archive survivor stories about partition. This is why the archive, a formal way of documenting stories is actually at the heart of the book. It's why 40% of the book takes place during partition and the other 60% is afterwards because I'm asking the question, what happens if we don't know our ancestors' histories? How does not knowing shape our lives? And so one of the mechanisms that the character stories converge is what I call in the book, The Partition Project, which is actually modeled after a real organization called the 1947 Partition Archive, which was started in 2011 by a woman named Gunita Singbala to help collect the stories of survivors during partition. And so it's this archive, The Partition Project, that eventually brings many of the character stories of partition to light. And it is how they begin to find one another.
2: And once again, poetry plays a major role in the culmination. Would you read Engine, the poem included in chapter 18?
1: Happily, let's see here. I will lay railroad tracks across continents one plank after another in perpetuity. Look for my reflection in the rails. Listen to the vibration of my voice. Why must words fail me now when only syllables can bridge the distance, the gap of our sorrow, the abyss between our entwined souls? (sighs) And then you step back a year and the
2: narrative moves to Lahore, Pakistan. The theme of origami is reintroduced, this time with metal sculpture. Anjali, I understand as a writer how you can include poetry for your characters. You can write those poems. But this visual art sculpture, how did this idea come to you?
1: You know, it's interesting. In 2012, I was staying at uh, the Hambage Center in Northeast Georgia in Rabin Gap, uh, working on the novel. And I went up to Highlands, North Carolina. There's a little museum there. And I was looking at, there was an exhibit and there were, there was uh, metallic uh, sculptures, sculptures made out of metal. And I entered this room and there were these beautiful small sculptures hanging from the ceiling. And I could not tell you Lois right now what those sculptures were, but the room was otherwise completely black and they were hanging from the ceiling and, and the light was sort of shining on the twine that they were hanging from and, from the scu- um, on, and on the sculptures themselves. And I, it was one of the most beautiful arrangements of art I'd ever seen. And I thought that is something that I need to think about using in this book. And so I began thinking about the artist in the book and what she needs at that time. She is in her 70s. She has seen a lot of tragedy in her life. And she's at a moment where she feels powerful. She is a survivor. And so to me, when I think of sculpture, when I think of metals, I think of strength. I think of the kind of force that's required to shape something out of metal. And I thought, how amazing is that, to be an artist who is a metal sculptor, who can who can mold something so strong and, and make it bend to their will in order to tell a story. And, and so that, to me, was a very natural medium for this character. Hmm.
2: The culmination of this novel is so gratifying. And parts leading up to it took my breath away.
1: That's such a compliment. Thank you so much, Lois. I
2: just loved it. And I'd love for you to read a final portion. Um, This is on page 252. For your purposes, it's when Shanti is at the Taj Mahal. And she says, Auntie, I know this spot. My father brought me right here to look out at this same view. She leaned over. Would you read there?
1: She peered down below to the Yumuna River, tributary of the Ganges River, which started in the Himalayas, flowed through Delhi, eastward into Bangladesh, and emptied eventually into the Bay of Bengal. One body of water joined another, and then another, in an endless cycle that would continue long after they all departed this earth. When her father brought her here 30 years earlier, she sensed the immortality of this place. There was a timelessness to it. And today, the link between her father, her grandparents, and her great-grandparents seemed stronger than ever, present in ways she couldn't explain.
2: Anjali and Jetty. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Lois. It's been such an honor to be here.
2: Atlanta author Anjali Angetti's new novel, The Parted Earth, is available now from Hub City Press. In a moment, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick explores American identity in his podcast series. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick's podcast, Being American, explores what it means to be an American in these unprecedented times. Governor Patrick visited with us via Zoom after the series premiered, and I asked him about starting conversation with people of opposing views and how to find our common values.
0: Well, it seems to me that in these divided and divisive times, there are conversations uh, about common values that are enormously difficult to have in politics, sadly. But there is so much uncommon wisdom I've found out and about, not just from the famous, but the as-yet-discovered, many folks doing, you know, as my grandmother would say, all the good they can in all the ways they can with all the time they have. And they have insights, I think, into where we are as a country and where we're going and how we can begin, I think, over time to see how much of what uh, ails us from community to community and individual to individual is in common. And if that's so... Some of the solutions that we have to think about, I think, um, can also be thought about as unifying themselves.
2: A recent episode of your podcast features the ballerina Misty Copeland. This was riveting. She was the first African-American woman to be promoted to principal dancer for American Ballet Theatre, what struck you most about her rise to success?
0: Her bravery, I think. It's obvious, I suppose, to, to anyone who is interested in dance that her skill is extraordinary. Her grace combined with her athleticism. She is a show-stopping talent and so much fun. And there's so much joy that she exudes When you're sitting in the audience watching her perform, which I've had an opportunity to to do maybe twice in my my life, but it's not until you really appreciate how much, uh, not just how much work goes into becoming a principal, but how staked the odds are against you if you are Black, particularly in classical ballet, not all dance, but classical ballet. And Christy talks about this, Ms. Copeland talks about this in the podcast, you know, what constitutes a body type for classical ba- ballet and who gets to say and why and the presumptions against you. And of course, then she started, I think, in her teens. Yeah, she said she didn't start till she was 13. Right, right. And here's something that I don't think we touched on in the podcast, but she was on point three months after starting her uh, ballet lessons. It takes years for most trained dancers to uh, go up on point. Three months. It's extraordinary.
2: She surely was a prodigy. I loved in that episode where you mentioned the governor, Doug Wilder, introducing you as the first African-American governor of Massachusetts And he said, you quote him saying, being first doesn't mean a thing unless there's a second. And the pressure that was on Misty Copeland for being the first to achieve what she has as prima ballerina, you'd think would be burdensome. But in your conversation, she carries it off with, the same grace she shows on stage.
0: I'm so so glad to hear you say that came through. I I think um, she was very clear about the pressure she was under or the high expectations she had, or actually a combination of high expectations of herself, by herself, and low expectations around her, that there were limits on the expectations others had that she would have to surmount. But I think there was a, a part of her conversation where of that conversation where she talked about the aftermath within the company of the George Floyd videotaped killing and how intimate and supportive she discovered in some ways her colleagues were of her. So it was, a, I think in some ways, an auspicious time to be having that kind of conversation with her about her rise to this height. I loved that
2: what came out of that conversation also was how being a good observer served her so beautifully, although the way she told it, she was so painfully shy. People thought she was mute.
0: Mm, How about that? How about that? But, you know, this is a, an inartful thing to say to a radio host, but I, th- I think to myself sometimes, how rich is our experience when we stop talking and just listen? Listen in the conversations that we're having with each other, but also just listening to others interact. Just what you learn, how you, um, it's not all content. Some of it is tone and touch. Some of it is grace and meanness. But you learn things about human interaction, which I think make life richer. And I think that's what Misty was trying to get across.
2: You talk about the importance of community. And and you've talked about growing up in a multi-generational household on a block where kids played outside and everyone looked out for each other. How do we find community now?
0: You know, the community we need isn't, it may be informed by past experience, but as I think about it, it's not about nostalgia, which is to say the, the lesson from the, from the South Side that I got from the old ladies in hats in church and the folks on the stoop who, who treated you like you were theirs is that, um, well, two two lessons really. One is that community is understanding you have a stake in your neighbor's dreams and struggles just as they do in yours. And that um, secondly, it's up to you, all of you, all of us, to do what we can in our time to leave things better for those who came behind us. Those are ancient lessons. Every single one of us learned those from our grandparents. But somehow or other, we, we sort of bleached them out made them off limits in our politics, in our commerce. And I think in lots of ways, these questions are being put again and behaviors are being changed in politics and in business, trying to be a part of that change.
2: I was wondering, as you ask each of your guests, what does it mean to be American is it chutzpah on my part to ask you, Governor Patrick?
0: <laughs> no, it's not. I, I, look, I think being American is about aspiration. I think it's about being able to imagine a different place for yourself and your family and then reach for it. And I think that if that is what being American is, and it has been for me and for others, and it is not for enough others then we have to ask each other, what does our patriotism demand of us, our citizenship demand of us, to assure that that is, in fact, the reality for, for everyone everywhere? And I think that raises a whole bunch of other really big questions.
2: Deval Patrick's 13-episode podcast series, Being American, is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Throughout 2020 and well into this year, virtual concerts, theater, comedy, and art exhibitions became the new normal. The South got something to say. It is something different. The exhibition features artworks on digital signs around downtown Atlanta. Karen Kermerlow curated the show. She joins us now via Zoom with one of the featured artists and friend of the show, Sheila Pre Bright. Welcome to City Lights.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: Karen What inspired you to display these works of art on digital signs rather than online for people to look at on a computer or phone?
3: Well, I have to, I can't take credit for this. I was invited to write a proposal for this exhibition earlier... You know, it's like Groundhog Day with this this past year. So sometime during during the pandemic, um, I just opened my email and I had an invitation from the Arts, the Downtown Arts and Entertainment District to write a proposal for this exhibition. I hadn't thought about anything like this until that time. As I started to think about what I wanted this show to be about, I started to just think about the past year, everything that has happened with the elections, the protests, and so on and so forth. And I really started to think about the influence of Atlanta. I'm a native of Atlanta, and I was really actively focused on this past election. And I never thought that I would see Georgia flipped the vote in the way that it did. And so I also started to think about music, you know, trap music started here in Decatur with Gucci Mane, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's debatable, but I will stay with that. I think Gucci Mane was, was the person that really propelled that music form. And now it's the dominant sound of music throughout the world. And I'm still surprised even when I see major motion pictures that are being filmed here, like Black Panther and the credits roll and it says it was filmed here in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So I've seen this city grow in dominant ways. And I really do think that we have an influence. And I think the world is looking at us and they wanna know what we're gonna do next and what we're gonna say next. Yeah. And thinking of all of that, I started to think through that terminology. The South got something to say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that came from Andre 3000. He made that statement at the Source Awards back in the 90s. And I thought that that would be just a fitting title for this exhibition and for what I wanted
2: the work to connect to. I think it is very fitting. And certainly, Outkast is one of Atlanta's biggest claims to fame culturally. Absolutely. The South Got Something to Say features works by 10 Atlanta-based artists, including Fahamu Peku, Shaniqua Gay, and, of course, Sheila Prebright. Bright. Sheila, your work, Untitled 12, Suburbia, from 2006, is one of your series of fine art photographs. Would you talk about how your perspective of the South shaped your creation of this photo?
4: Well, I think being in Atlanta, and it's the home of the civil rights movement, we have a large community of African Americans. And what has been focused on is more of the marginalized communities. And so with this body of work, I felt that this work need to be seen. And I wanted to talk about the invisibility of African Americans in suburbia. I felt that it was very important to bring it into the art world. Indeed.
2: And so our listeners can know where to look for these works. How did you decide on the particular signs you selected for the exhibition, Karen?
3: Well, again, I can't take full credit for that. I'm working in partnership with the Downtown Atlanta Arts and Entertainment District, as well as Dash. They are the facilitators of this exhibition. And so I selected the artists, selected the artwork, but they really are the behind the scenes people who, you know, they presented the signs to me, explained to me the process of how this works. You know, I've been curating for over 20 years, but I've never curated work in this format. And so I've been learning through this process.
2: I can imagine. Stepping back a moment, Karen, what drew you to the particular photograph of Sheila's that she just talked about?
3: I've been working with Sheila for years, uh, more years than I care to admit. (laughs) And so I know her various bodies of work very well. And in thinking about the South got something to say. I selected two of Sheila's works for this exhibition and this particular piece, this suburbia piece, she speaks about the invisibility of the African-American community. It also brings to mind to me, the Breonna Taylor situation. And, Mm -hmm. you know, when I look at this image now, it's changed in context because of that piece of, of our recent history that has happened. And I think about the safety of African-Americans in our homes. And so the duality in the meaning of this, I thought it would be provocative. You know, many people may look at it and just see an African-American woman reading this Newsweek magazine, but I think it has several layers of meaning and It's something that can be contemplated on. Yeah, And so I really wanted to have something that I know this is a digital sign. I know they're going to be flashing. And so it's not in a traditional white box, but I wanted something that maybe someone walks down this street every day to get to work or something like that. And so I'm hoping that they will see this and want to come back and look at it again.
2: Sheila, what do you think about this work you did 15 years ago and now the interpretation it can have after the tragedy of Breonna Taylor's murder?
4: I absolutely agree with Karen, because when you said that, Karen, I I thought about the hashtag protect the Black woman. Mm-hmm. And this is a woman that's in her home, in the comfort of her home. And you just don't know what can happen when it comes to what's all been going on within our community for years. And nothing was really focused at the time of Black women. And I feel that that's very important And I think with the work that Karen has chosen, hopefully people will not just see, but listen to the images and have them ponder for more critical thought and to push their imagination about what Black futures would look like.
2: Hmm. Have we talked about your second photo?
4: Oh, Invisible Empire. That body was commissioned out to me. At Washington Post. And it wasn't in the 2019. And as you know, as well as I've been photographing protests since 2013, I've been exhausted. I, it's just like, when is this going to stop? So when I got a call from the photo editor, he said, I want you to talk about racism. I'm like, oh my God, I'm not shooting people. And so I decided to go up to Stone Mountain because I wanted to challenge myself to landscapes and talk about the institution of white supremacy through landscapes, because that park is very beautiful. It's a place where you can go to relax, but that symbolism of the institution of white supremacy have not necessarily been really dealt with. And I wanted to photograph the landscapes to show how beautiful it is, but also talk about the race, the root of racism with that. And the image that's going to be on the digital sign is a Bible. And it's actually Mm -hmm. my father's Bible, because um, when I was doing a lot of research about the KKK, I didn't realize that that was the Stone Mountain was the second coming of the KKK. And on Thanksgiving Day, they actually went up to the mountain that night or that evening, burned a cross, had the Bible and read, I believe my memory's gone, but I think it's not Romans. It's one of the chapters in there that they read when they reformed their organization. And that's my father's Bible because him and my mother grew up in the era of Jim Crow. And when I set that Bible down, and I'm telling you, the spirit or something happened. When I laid the Mm -hmm. Bible down, it flipped over to the page of Romans and I (gasps) took the photograph. (laughs) And both of my parents are are no longer living. Wow.
2: Amazing. This is a powerful statement. Those words, the South got something to say, are about recognition. How does This digital exhibition give you, and Atlanta's many talented visual artists, the recognition you deserve, and might I add, outside the confines of the museum. Absolutely.
3: That's the objective, to bring the museum outside. And so with the artists that I selected for this exhibition, each of them have been showing in museums, have an established career nationwide, but they all just happen to live here in Atlanta. And so I wanted to present something of museum quality, but for the public, because there are many people who don't think about museum spaces. They don't enter those spaces. But if they happen to encounter something, my hope is that it will spark some kind of curiosity in them. Maybe they'll see, you know, Fahamu's um, image at Reverb and and just be pulled into it and want to know more about that image and who made it. And then that investigation can hopefully lead them into some of the doors of the arts institutions here in the city.
2: Yes. Now, summer weather is upon us and... Life outside of our homes is really beginning again with the reopening of businesses, restaurants, movie theaters, and more. What do you hope this exhibition will contribute to Atlantan's experience of returning to downtown, perhaps for the first time in over a year? I hope that
3: they will see this work and just... Get excited about it. You know, I hope that it will be something that families will come out to see over and over again, individuals, whomever sees the work and it sparks some sort of excitement in them. I hope that they'll come out, see it, post it all over social media. Like, I really want it to be an exciting event that
2: Atlanta can be proud of. Sheila? You have had major exhibitions. You've been in impressive museums and your work has been published. What do you hope you might gain from being on digital signs?
4: Well, I think in 2012, I've always thought of my work. My work speaks to the people outside of the museums. And I feel that we're living in a new decade where we have to rethink and rewire our mind of how we view, see, and read imagery. And I think since the pandemic and all of us have been cooped up into the houses and a lot of reflection has been going on, it's good that these institutions are using the environment to bring art, and I hope that more of it will happen because we are changing. Our lives will not in totality go back the same way. So I'm hoping that more individuals, communities, shared communities can start experiencing art.
2: Artists Sheila Pre Bright and Karen Comer Lowe, curator of The South Got Something to Say. The art exhibit can be seen on digital signs around downtown Atlanta through July 31st. To learn more, visit our website at wabe.orgslash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Amanda Plum will be our guest. Her new book, called Unique Eats and Eateries of Atlanta, is a dining guide from a storyteller's point of view. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, And Shelley Knavey is our engineer. I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and Check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to member-supported WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR.